Hey, I'm Brian Hyatt, and this is Rolling Stone Music Now. I'm in the studio with Andy Green, and we're going to be joined by Stephen Hyden, a longtime friend of the show, author of Twilight of the Gods, A Journey to the End of Classic Rock, to talk not about classic rock, but about perhaps one of the last mainstream rock bands from the 90s to still have any currency whatsoever, Weezer. Weezer just cannot be killed. Weezer is unkillable. Weezer has a new album out called The Black Album, or I guess it's just called, is it called The Black Album technically, or is it called Weezer and is known as The Black Album? I know that. They call it the Black Album. So. All right, fuck it. Yeah. The Black Album. Yeah. I kind of like this album. It's produced by Dave Sitek, and it's kind of interesting. Weezer has had one of the weirdest careers ever, and I just think there's a lot to dig into. Steven, are you are there, correct? Yeah, I'm here, guys. Hey, welcome. So let's start by asking you guys a big question. Why is Weezer still around to the extent they are when basically no one else from their era is besides maybe the Foo Fighters? I think a big part of it is that they don't give up. They do an album per year. They tour like crazy, and they're very smart about getting attention. The Africa cover, it was silly in a lot of ways, but that was very clever. Then the Teal album was a great way to get attention to cover no scrubs is a guaranteed way to blow up on twitter there's a certain shamelessness there too right steven yeah i would definitely agree with you know everything andy just said that i think most fans of that era at some point become content to play to their old fans and they may still put out records but they're not going to radically shake up the formula too much and whatever else you want to say about weezer artistically uh, which i think you could say a lot of bad things about them artistically if from a career standpoint I think that they have been canny about continuing to stay in the spotlight. What is it about Rivers Cuomo himself? Because he is an unusual human being, to say the least. Here's my theory about him. It's not really a theory. It's an idea. I think in some ways he's the first human songwriter to cross into the uncanny valley. And I think most people know what the uncanny valley is. The term is used in movies when you have sort of an animated character who approaches being human in appearance, but there's just something off. It's why it's bad to try to get too close to realism in animation, because if it's right there, but doesn't quite make it across like that movie, The Polar Express, there's something unsettling about it. And I think while Rivers Cuomo is, in fact, as far as I know, an actual human being, he is a wife and children and everything, it's like he's the first AI songwriter. You know, he's made spreadsheets analyzing Nirvana songs. He's attempted to crack the code of songwriting. He's done all that stuff. And while we ponder this idea, let's hear a song that did crack the code of songwriting that he didn't write. Weezer's version, entirely essential version of No Scrubs by TLC. What he wants and just sits on his broke ass soul. No, I don't want your number, no. I think if like Carmen and horrible white YouTube people covering R&B songs hadn't existed, that might be more bearable. Because <laughs> it unfortunately falls into that different uncanny value, a racial uncanny value, like an uncomfortable sort of area. But what do you guys think of that insane idea? What? That he's that, part fake? I mean, yeah, no, no, that, but, but just that, Stephen, you know what I mean. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to compare Rivers Cuomo to Bob Dylan in a very, very narrow way. Go for it. I think that, you know, with Bob Dylan, people spend a lot of time analyzing his motivations. You know, like, why does he do certain things? Why is he putting out albums of standards? Why is he making a wacky Christmas album? And I think people do the same thing with Rivers Cuomo, that there's this parlor game that people, they love to analyze his level of sincerity or, you know, to figure out, is he doing these covers because he actually likes these covers or is he just doing it because he wants to create viral hits? And 
on some level, I feel like, in a similar case to Bob Dylan, that I think people overanalyze him. In a way, I feel like he's less calculating than maybe people believe that on some level, I think he does these things because he actually thinks it's fun to do a cover of Toto's Africa or that it's fun to write a song on his new record about zombies. You know, but there's this element to that that it just seems so sort of incomprehensible that people can't wrap their heads around it. So he's achieved this thing where even when people no longer like his records, they're still <laughs> interested and they're passionate about it in a way that I don't think people are with a lot of bands that they eventually lose interest in. Usually you end up being indifferent, but people who don't like Weezer continue to be passionate about them, which I think makes them unique. Yeah, I think what happened is a mythology has been surrounding him for a long time because he vanished, because there were years in which he wasn't around and he was this missing entity that was at Harvard that you didn't know where he was. A sort of legend, it was grown around him at a very young age. When he was still in his 20s, he was gone. And now? And now he's always there, so it's a very weird thing. I mean, hating Weezer has become part of that mythology now. Like, people who love Weezer also hating them has become part of their persona, and it was typified in that recent Saturday Night Live sketch. A very niche thing to be making fun of, but for people who are familiar with Weezer, it really hit home this idea that there are people who will be at a party and they'll get into an argument about whether the first two records are the only ones that matter or if gratitude is underrated. <laughs> you know, And that doesn't happen at, say, Pearl Jam, for instance, who, you know, we can talk about the quality of their later records, but generally most of the energy is about the 90s work. And then even people who still like Pearl Jam, they don't get angry about the later records. Maybe they don't care about them, but it's not like people are getting angry about Lightning Bolt it's, in the same way that people get angry about the Teal album. It's hilarious that you already brought up Pearl Jam, Stephen, because uh, while we were walking over to the show, Andy and I immediately segued from Weezer into Pearl Jam because I think there's many fruitful comparisons there, so maybe we'll get there. But you got there really fast, which is very funny. We may have three altogether two similar brains on this show today, for which I apologize. But what I would say about that Saturday Night Live sketch, and for people who don't know, yeah, there was a much buzzed about Saturday Night Live sketch about Weezer. And what I thought was interesting and a little bit sad is what that sketch and the degree of excitement and attention paid to it illustrated about the current state of rock and roll, well, of rock, who would call Razor rock and roll, but of rock in the popular culture of the moment, which is that it is so despised <laughs> and so outside the center of what people care and talk about that the fact that they mentioned a rock band's name on Saturday Night Live and Leslie Jones was in the sketch talking about specifics of a rock band's catalog, it caused this surge of excitement and surprise that anyone would even remember <laughs> Like, what rock was. I really thought that was extraordinary, the attention paid to that. Right, but because it was Weezer, I think if they were talking about Green Day or something, it mm. would not have been as big a deal. There's something about Weezer that just pushes people's buttons. I think part of it is because back in the 90s, there were so many teenagers that felt a deep connection to the lyrics, and they were so close to their vision of this band, and they felt betrayed for so long that they're still pissed about it. I was just going to make another comparison here. You know, we were talking about Pearl Jam. I think another comparison that makes a lot of sense to me is the Beach Boys in the late 1980s. You know, yeah. uh, when the Beach Boys at that time, they transitioned where they were, you know, they had a number one hit with Kokomo. They were on Full House all the time. <laughs> and they were a very cheesy band, but they were very successful. And I looked up, Mike Love was 47 when Kokomo was released as a single. And when Africa was released as a single, River 
Cuomo was like two weeks away from turning 47. <laughs> so there's a parallel there, I think. And to follow on Andy's point, I think that there are people who believe that what Weezer's doing now is almost like a betrayal to like their early work, that it makes you feel stupid in a way to have believed that Pinkerton was a great record when they're covering No Scrubs. It's almost like Rivers Cuomo's making fun of you for ever thinking that this band was important. I think it was a similar thing with Beach Boys fans, where if you will, Pet Sounds, to then see them with Jesse and the Rippers on uh, Full House. <laughs> it was a very kind of embarrassing. But, you know, the Beach Boys are still around. In 2019, there's Beach Boys tours. So I wouldn't be surprised if Weezer is carrying on because I think they have that instinct to reinvent themselves, no matter how embarrassing it might be in the short term. Well, there's actually a lot to unpack there, one of which is there have been many Weezers to many different generations and groups, just as there were sort of many Beach Boys. And I think we should get into that. But also, there's this thing where Weezer, yes, exactly like the Beach Boys and like many old-timey bands, follow this model where you just keep going. We've actually talked about this before, that this sort of Jefferson Starship model, where you just, you know, sort of remodel yourself as the decades go by you just never stop or like sort of if you go to fiction like the spinal tap model where at one point you're a skiffle band and by the time you know, enough time passes you're a metal band and who knows what you'll be in another 10 years it's just more of a commercial approach or more of just a lifespanning approach where you just right. do not stop and fans want their favorite groups to be frozen in time to forever be the thing that they loved back then and so to watch them change is almost painful at times what's funny about weezer too that has been forgotten a little bit is that just a couple years ago, they seemed to be making a concerted effort to woo back fans that they had lost. There was that song, Back to the Shack, which is a very classic-sounding Weezer song from 2014, where there was Cuomo, like, says in the song, we're going to do it like it's 1994. It's a direct appeal to those people. And then the record they put out after that, the White Album, has, like, a lot of sort of classic-sounding Weezer songs on it. Of course, those albums, you know, there was no Africa-level hit off of those records. Let's hear Back in the Shack for a minute, because, yeah, it could not have been a more concerted effort to recapture the early years. Sorry, guys, I didn't realize that I needed you so much. I thought I'd get a new audience. I forgot that disco sucks. <laughs> I mean, honestly, one thing I have realized in recent years is he really can be hilarious. Well, yeah, and he's very aware of the talk about him. He goes on Twitter. He reads his mentions. He's extremely aware of all the scuttlebutt. So he writes a song where he apologizes for everything. It's crazy. But it's not totally sincere. That's the no, thing. Yes. It's like Because I think also people think that because he's so odd that yeah. he's not capable of humor. But he obviously is. I mean, you know, I look like Buddy Holly and yeah. Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, like he was funny from the start. Yeah. Actually, and he plays the oddness up. I think that he likes being seen as this sort of weird character that has no humor or anything, and that's not really him. It's sort of a persona he puts on. I feel like I keep bringing up Bob Dylan in this context, which seems ridiculous, but there is that duality with him where Dylan will do certain things that seem perverse and that you could maybe interpret as being like a self-aware tip to how he knows people perceive him. Rivers Cuomo will do that, but then he'll backtrack and claim that, well, maybe, like, I wasn't trying to be funny there. Or I wasn't, like, he had a comment about the SNL sketch where he said he saw the sketch and that he was crying when he saw it. And then he did an interview with the New York Times where he said, well, I never saw the sketch. So he kind of does that a lot. It's hard to pin him down, which, again, I think feeds into this sort of cult of personality around him where people love to analyze what he does. Let's hear a little bit of uh, Zombie Bastards from the new album, which I actually found pretty amusing, I have to say. 
I realize that part of why I enjoyed this new album is, first of all, Dave Sitek really did a fantastic job producing it, I have to say, number one. And number two, it's kind of like a comedy album. One of the songs has a line like, give me five stars and I'll give you five stars too, like a sort of an Uber type reference. We're jumping around, but let's talk about Pinkerton for just a minute. So Pinkerton is their second album, and Pinkerton is the album that both kind of served to repel some of their mainstream fans at the time, but also cemented them as a band who were so close to people's hearts. It was perceived as this confessional, heart-rending thing, and it formed their legend, right? Yeah, that it's a very raw sound, and it's just him pouring his guts out. He was at Harvard. He was in extreme pain because he had this leg surgery, so he was hobbling around Harvard and had no friends and was miserable, and he poured all this pain into this amazing record that had no real singles on it. And as the years went by, it became just this legendary thing that all the fans bases that they became obsessed with and then he disowned it so it became almost forbidden music in that he himself was bashing it and he wouldn't play the songs and he called the fans that liked the little bitches and again we'll get back to it but Weezer's debut they were a major label band with no kind of indie roots this is one of these things that's lost to the sands of time essentially but they were greeted with a lot of suspicion by sort of the core people in the rock world because at that point if you emerged from nowhere with a big hit and on MTV with no indie career you were totally suspect and Pinkerton totally changed that while being voted the most disappointing record of the year by Rolling Stone readers not by Rolling Stone magazine this is a thing that gets very confused over the years and then as Andy hinted at Rivers did disbanded Weezer essentially for like three years Yeah, there was no Weezer and no Weezer album and we were saying before that was the best period for Weezer as far as popular perception. That was when they became legends. And it made me seem like they were going to be sort of neutral Milk Hotel-esque and never put out another record. And they became an inspiration for an entire generation of emo bands and just were, at that point, untouchable. Does that match your perception, Stephen? Yeah, I mean, one of the things I find fascinating about Weezer is that this is a band that I've followed in real time. I right. was a fan of their first record when it came out in high school, and I've followed them ever since. And my memory of Pinkerton was that Weezer at that time was looked at as sort of a corny band that it followed in the trail of Nirvana, that they were sort of like a second-tier alternative rock band. And that with Pinkerton, I remember buying that record the week it came out because I still liked Weezer, but like they were not a cool band. And no one really exactly. cared about Weezer at that time. And I remember being shocked when they became this emo sort of godhead band because even at the time when I listened to Pinkerton, I really loved Pinkerton, but I didn't think of it as, as this like heavy record. I thought it was like a pretty funny record that had some <laughs> like twisted songs on it, but it had this sort of importance projected onto it in that intervening time when they were no longer a band and then put out the Green Album. That's well, their big comeback. We were talking about Pinkerton, which feels like very much the crux of the Weezer story, but let's instead double back to the beginning of their career and then make our way back to Pinkerton. So basically Rivers had this pretty oddball upbringing yeah. Makes his way to L.A. Yeah, then he works at Tower Records on Sunset, and he listened to constant music, but he loved Metallica, he loved Kiss, he loved Cheap Trick, and even bands like Poison and Motley Crue. He, he liked all that stuff. He was a shreddy-level guitarist. Right. Then he meets Jason Cropper, who's a great guitar player, and he gets Pat Wilson on drums, he gets Matt Sharp on bass, and they form this band. It's like a sort of power-poppy kind of 90s group, and they tour for about two straight years, and they perfect 10 great songs 
just by playing constantly. And they get signed, they get teamed up with the Cars frontman Rico Kasich to produce them. And on like the third day of the sessions, they march in and they announce that they fired Jason Cropper, who was a key part of their sound, who co-wrote My Name is Jonas and all these songs. That whole intro is all Jason Cropper. Let's hear the beginning of uh, My Name is Jonas and pour one out for Jason Cropper. Yeah, it's, it's, an, it's an awesome part, and it, it's very worth noting that the two key collaborators in the band then were Jason Cropper and Matt Sharp, and they've both been gone for decades. So that's not nothing. <laughs> and they bring Brian Bell in on guitar, and from the very beginning, they get pushed hard by the label. They're on MTV with the Sweater song, and then the Buddy Holly video comes, which was a very... Because even back then, they knew how to get attention. It was from Happy Days. It was the Al's Diner set. They brought Al back, and they have this huge... Huge, huge hit, and then the album comes out. You know, just yeah. to stop. That's a great point, actually. Yeah, that was a very sort of modern move in some ways, even though it was you know the Happy Days. Yeah, by Rivers, but it, it was sort of a, as they would say now, like a clout-seeking type move. Mm-hmm. where he understood the value of novelty and, again, the shamelessness. It was a far sort of, like, cuter and more overtly commercial thing than anyone in alt-rock yeah. would then attempt. And they hired Spike Jones to do the video. And it's this great video where they appear to be in the diner and Fonzie's dancing. And it was just, it's the same time period as Boogie Nights and so much 70s nostalgia that it was kind of perfect. Well, it's just sort of hilarious when you look at it that way and be like, I'm so offended that the band who who used Happy Days in the Fonz in their very first uh, hit video would ever do something calculated and commercial. It's right. sort of hilarious. But the album comes out and the deeper tracks like Say It Ain't So, which was a hit, and The World Has Turned and Left Me Here, they really connected. This was post-Nirvana and this was the next band that so many teenagers could really connect to. He was sort of the voice of their frustrations in a certain way. Yeah, back then, it's hard to remember, but back then a thing would happen is a band might have a hit on MTV and stuff, but if they made a good album, people would buy that CD, take it home, and bond with it. Right. And that's how fans were made. It's a lost process, but it's a thing that would happen. So they tour like crazy, and I've spoken to Rivers about this time period. They're doing the same 10 songs that's been every night for the past like three years now, and he starts going crazy. He gets really bored by the whole thing. He said every day is just the same damn 10 songs, and then the same interviews and then the same backstage and he started losing his mind and he decided to take a break and go to college. <laughs> did he go to community college first? Uh, or did I he... forget the timeline. I think it was straight to Harvard. So in 95... When he's pretty young, he just enrolls in Harvard and the band stops, which to have that much momentum and then just stop suddenly cold is pretty crazy. Can you imagine the moment? This would be good in the Weezer biopic, by the way, that I'm working on. But can you imagine the moment where like, hey, guys, calls up the record label and it's like, yeah, so some news. Um, And like, oh, great. You're working on the follow up. Uh, Which old TV show are you going to have in this one? And he's like, yeah, a little change of plans. I'm going to go to Harvard and we'll see. And at the same time, he was born with one leg shorter than the other. So he has this agonizing surgery where they break his leg and I forget how they do it, but it was this 
agonizing thing where he had a cane for years. You know, so he goes to Harvard. He's this strange old guy who has a cane and with no friends. Yeah, he grew a beard and he is the weirdo at Harvard in a school where it's hard to impress people. This strange rock star is just always by himself. And as we know from later songs and interviews, he's sitting there just tragically crushing on all these young women who have absolutely zero interest in him. And the lyrics on Pinkerton are this story that he asked a girl to a Green Day concert and she goes, sorry, I have never heard of them. And just like walks away, basically. (laughs) (laughs) He falls in love with somebody else who has a pink triangle on her backpack. So he realizes that she's a lesbian. It's just all of his horny frustrations are just poured into these songs. And so he releases Pinkerton and it did not connect commercially. It was actually perceived as a disappointment. Yeah. And there's no hits, really. And they tour a bit. Then he's like, fuck it. I'm going back to school now. (laughs) We talked about the incredible reception it ended up getting and the legend that built in the intervening years. But one of the odd things about Rivers, and I think Stephen touched on this, is the way his public statements about Pinkerton have evolved or not evolved. He has said all manner of totally contradictory yeah. things about this it album. It was mainly in like 2001. And I had read these quotes to him. I have had him on the phone. I, you made me read some quotes to yeah. him too. He did not like that. And he basically like denies saying them, which is very funny. Well, what did he say that he now denies? He said that it's awful music that no one should listen to it and most famously as I said the fans who loved it were quote they were like little bitches (laughs) I mean he may be ashamed of some of the subject matter you were talking about this Stephen what do you make of his bizarre takes on Pinkerton which is obviously a fraught subject and yet the band would not still exist without it yeah I mean this is one of the big mysteries of the Weezer career arc because when Weezer came back with the Green album Rivers Cuomo trashed Pinkerton and he seemed to suggest that when they made the Green album that it was his goal to essentially write mathematical type rock songs that he didn't want to have any emotion in the songs. He didn't want to write about himself. He wanted the songs to sort of unfold in a very sort of clean, again, kind of like almost like mathematical kind of way. And this speaks to what you were saying earlier, Brian, where you were speculating about how he's like part cyborg or like, you know, he's Hmm. in the uncanny valley. And there is an aspect to Rivers Cuomo, I think, post Pinkerton, where it's very hard to read him as far as his own engagement in the music. And like whether he is committed to what he's doing or if he's merely writing songs because he's following some sort of equation that he feels like this is the way that I'm going to have a successful record. And I think that's what's very difficult for fans of that band to understand. I mean, I actually enjoy the Green album. I think it's a fun album. I think Me too. Good songs on it. But, you know, if you listen to it, you will notice that every song has a guitar solo in the middle that is just repeating the vocal melody. Which, by the way, may have been what he meant when he analyzed Nirvana songs, because that is definitely a Nirvana thing. So, right. And but- every song is about two and a half minutes. They don't really deviate from a formula. And he's good at that formula, but it does feel a little bit empty if you were invested in Pinkerton or the first record. Let's hear Hashpipe from that record for a moment. Yeah, to just back up a tiny bit, a key thing happened between these records is that Matt Sharp leaves the band and he forms the Rentals. And why was that a key thing? Well, because A, it's he made a very strong record on his own, which I think freaked Rivers out, and they lost a key member of the band. When they come back, it's a different lineup. They have Mikey Walsh playing bass suddenly. I do think that Rivers was embarrassed by Pinkerton. It's more of a gut thing, but I think given how rare it's since been to have anything so heartrending, and I mean, I think across the sea is... <laughs> 
<laughs> probably where he may feel a bit exposed. Across the Sea is an extraordinary song, a song that perhaps now would be perceived, people have written about this a touch differently. Well, the first line is, you are 18-year-old girl. <laughs> Yeah, the first line, it's it's written in the sort of patois of a young Japanese woman who, I presume, based on a real fan letter. Yes. Yeah. You know, you are 18-year-old girl who live in small city of Japan. Maybe I shouldn't read this, but, (laughs) uh, you know... She's of age. This is a, right, right. Uh, let's hope it's not that thing where, like, in certain rock stars' uh, biographies, where the groupie they're talking about, depending on what year they write the biography, gets four years older. Yeah. But let's hear a little bit of Across the Sea if we can. Also dubious, honestly. <laughs> yeah, I think it's sort of it's a tongue in cheek. I, think. It's the, I, I know, but just holy shit, I forgot about that. Yeah. Because it sounds, yeah. I think a sign that he might be embarrassed by this is that I'm embarrassed right now <laughs> for him. I'm, I'm blushing for him, and it gets worse. He literally says, uh, I wonder what clothes you wear to school. I wonder how you decorate your room. I wonder how you touch yourself and curse myself for being across the sea. I mean, look, what can you say? What, what can you well, say? He, my counter to that, and you know, he may be embarrassed by that. I am inclined to think that he was embarrassed by the reception and by its bombing. I don't know if he's as embarrassed about the lyrics, because this is a guy who also, a decade later, wrote a song called I'm Your Daddy, and this song <laughs> called The Girl Got Hot. You know, like, this guy has written a lot of embarrassing lyrics <laughs> after Pinkerton. So I don't know if he would be embarrassed in that way. Interesting. I wonder if he's embarrassed because it took some slagging in the press and that it had sold much less than the Blue Album. Yeah, but he knows that it then became their most beloved and acclaimed album. You know, and he was saying that after that's why I think it's horribly fraught for him. I really do. I don't know why exactly. But they play the songs now. Right. I saw over it. yeah. Yeah. I saw him play it straight through about ten years ago. I mean they fully embraced it by now. Yeah, so the Green Album was the launch of, I guess, the third Weezer. The first Weezer was, <laughs> just to keep track of our Weezers, first Weezer was a very commercial rock band in 1994. Second Weezer was a failed Weezer that made a failed weird album. The third Weezer was a band who actually turned out to be incredibly influential and made a confessional masterpiece, the same album that was the failed album, mm-hmm. and influenced a whole generation of bands in the most legendary period. And then so then fourth Weezer was Green Album Weezer, who made yet another group of fans with these very commercial songs like Hashpipe. Yeah, and it was huge. And they're back in MTV now, like five years later. Wait, so that was number four, right? Yeah, so, that was Weezer. So, and, so then Weezer number five. Well, it's the same group that made Maladroit, then they got a new bass player, and then they vanished again. Then there's three more years where he's back at Harvard. He knows Mark Zuckerberg and Ali Portman. He's there at the same time. <laughs> And there was three more years where they were a myth again, where there's no Weezer. Hey, then they can come... I just make a quick interjection? Sure, oh, please. Because I, I feel like we're skipping over Maladroit. I just want to yeah. give a quick shout out to Maladroit. I think that's the most underrated record in the Weezer canon. I think it's a really good record. And it's probably like the last, I think, really great Weezer record. Yeah. It's also the most like metal sounding record. I don't know if you like listen to like a lot of Queens of the Stone Age at that time, but it reminds me of that at times. So. 
I just wanted to do a quick shout out to Maladroid, so we don't. I know there's probably people out there, other Maladroid heads, who will be with me on that. Yes, so. and, and actually, I'll tell a, a Maladroid story that again, sort of lost to somewhat, perhaps lost to history. But I was at Entertainment Weekly, and I got, as many journalists got, a burned CD in the mail with a semi-personalized letter from Rivers, being like, "Here's my new CD. The label won't put it out." And I was like, "What the fuck is this?" And I put it on, and yeah, my reaction was, "Oh, this kind of rocks. Like they're making this kind of like R A W." UK kind of rock album and it fascinated me and I talked to him about it at the time and so there they were again sort of weirdly self-sabotaging while attempting to make something interesting so it, it it's definitely a weird moment yeah yeah and there's all these lost songs in this time period that the fans are obsessed with there's probably like 25 songs between 2000 and 02 that they didn't release that are all the fans favorites let's hear American Gigolo from Eldred for a minute <laughs> So let's uh, keep the story going past Maldor, right? Okay, so they vanish again. It was like three years where they're gone, and he's back at Harvard. He's back living in a tiny dorm room. He would meditate in a closet for hours at a time and hear no music. Then in 05, they come back with, it's an album that's called Make Believe and the biggest hit of their career by far, which is Beverly Hills. And, I mean, I kind of like Beverly Hills. Andy hates it. I hate it. <laughs> Stephen, where do you fall on the Beverly Hills spectrum? Well, it's funny because Make Believe was a record I hated at the time, and I've come to like more because these are put up so many worse albums than that. <laughs> yeah. I don't mind Beverly Hills anymore. I think Perfect Situation is a really good song, and there's like about three or four, I think. Yeah, really good so is. Like, we Are All on Drugs is a great Lost Weezer song. <laughs> Let's hear Beverly Hills, even though I'm sure you've heard it uh, many, many times. Now we are we are just past Beverly Hills, around which time, by the way, Rivers pulled one of the strangest moves of all time. And in his Rolling Stone cover story, he decided he would give the interviewer only an hour. Usually people spend days hanging out. He decided one hour. He put on an egg timer. And of course, our writer, Vanessa Grigoriadis, put that in the story. And then Rivers is very aggrieved at that. And it's like, what do you think would happen? Anyway, so Beverly Hills, make-believe. Then what happened? And then about four years pass, or about, about three years, and they come back with an album that was just called The Red Album. That was the beginning of a long decline. And there's a single on that album that's called Pork and Beans, where they sing about the pressure they're under to use Timbaland as their producer. And as I was saying, at least they only sang about it rather than actually work with Timbaland. Now, I love Timbaland, but I don't think he had much to add to Weezer or Chris Cornell. Maybe Chris Cornell should have just sung about the pressure rather than actually doing a whole album with him. Yeah. But let's listen to pork and beans for a second Timberland knows the way to reach the top of the chart maybe if I work with him I can perfect the art <laughs> so yeah so the album is a bit uh, of a disappointment though I think that song is actually kind of cool Steven, you were saying? I gotta say, when I talk to younger Weezer fans, they really like this record. And I know when I saw Weezer, probably seven, eight years ago, the Red Album songs went over really well, whereas a lot of people were sort of indifferent about the Pinkerton songs. <laughs> wow. and, Again, like, I mean, many I, Weezers, yeah. I, I mean, I hated the Red Album when it came out. I wrote a very scathing review of it at the time, and although I mellowed a little bit on it since then. 
But it's interesting. I do feel that, like, for people that were maybe teenagers at the time that that record came out, that it has a better reputation than it does probably among older Weezer fans. Yeah, I think that was their last record that made any sort of a cultural impact. Until Africa and stuff. Yeah, and, no. and, and <laughs> until their novelty period. Because after that, it was all these co-writers on the albums. It was Dr. Luke, it was Jack Knife Lee, it was Jermaine Dupree, and they stopped really sounding like Weezer. And during that period, I talked to Rivers on the phone and he literally did this thing. He was like, and again, I now think this is completely an act. He was like, um, oh, you know, my manager says I shouldn't talk about the co-writers, mm-hmm. which I'm a hundred percent sure knowing him a little better that that was totally fake. Yeah. I talked to him in the same time period it was in person, and he's like, yeah, I'm sorry, dude. I can't talk with the co-writers. And then a masseuse showed up, and he was sorry, dude. I have got a massage, so I used to go now. I, I'm like, I'm like, I came to Queens to talk to you. I get 20 minutes, and you say nothing. Then the masseuse comes. I mean, it was just crazy. And then the concerts got crazy because the drummer, Pats, he stopped playing drums. He would play guitar. And then Josh Freeze would play drums, and River stopped playing guitar. So it was this crazy five-man lineup in which nobody is doing the right thing. It was just chaos erupted. And then there's an album a year. It's boom, boom, boom. And they got worse and worse and worse. Yeah, I remember seeing them at around this time. It was like maybe 2010 or 11. And it was an interesting show because I had seen them when they came back on the Green Album. And it was a very boring show. No interaction with the audience, just standing there. You know, there was nothing really extra to the show. And then when I saw them like 10 years later, it was karaoke night with a bunch of cocaine or something. It was like very energetic, <laughs> very over the top. And Rivers was all over the place and he was dancing. Me- and- metaphorically, by the way, for legal reasons, not literally. Yeah, uh, yes, yeah. yes. I'm just, I'm trying to paint a picture here. It was weird, but. In a way, I kind of enjoyed the show more for that. But you know, as you were saying, they didn't feel like they had any connection to their history at that point. It yeah. felt very strange and watching them. He told me he's kind st- of compelling. And he was telling me that he stopped playing guitar because he wanted to be David Lee Roth and be free to just bounce around the stage. And, you know, I will say the narrative is complicated, again, by the fact that I am kind of enjoying this new album. Yeah. I think it's pretty good. Have you had a chance to really check it out, Stephen? Yeah, I, uh, <laughs> I listened to it this morning because you know, I knew I'd be talking to you guys. I think it's terrible. <laughs> I think it's awful. I, think, I thought the Teal album was awful. Although canny, at the same time, I understand from a career standpoint, it was probably a good move, but it was such a basic premise. Boring covers played with zero imagination. It was embarrassing. This record, I feel like he's definitely trying to push the novelty button again hoping that he can have a viral hit, maybe with one of these wacky-sounding <laughs> songs. Oh, I don't know. I, it sounds like Brad Maroon 5 or Bad Oh! It kind of reminds me of, like, uh, there's a train song. What's that called? Hey, Soul Sister? No. no that's not like, I, I'm just a two-ply looking for something. You know that song? Drive-by. Drive-by. So, I don't know these uh, train deep cuts that you guys are such big fans of. <laughs> that was a hit, Brad. <laughs> that was a hit. I know you guys are, are train heads, you know. <laughs> you call so, yourself a music journalist? Yeah, 
we'll, on, we'll, we'll be digging into the trend catalog next week on Rolling Stone Music Now. So, Stephen Hyden and Andy Green, thanks so much for joining me today. I feel, again, that there's so much Weezer to talk about. Weezer's career will be continuing on in the next decades. When everyone else is a K-pop hologram, they will be a K-pop hologram, whatever it takes. But it remains fascinating. So this has been today's Rolling Stone Music Now. We'll be back next week here on Sirius XM's volume, Channel 106. In the meantime, we are a podcast. Subscribe to us as a podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a nice review on iTunes if you can. And as always, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next week. Welcome to Talkville, the ultimate Smallville rewatch podcast. Guest star Sarah Carter as Alicia Baker. Although I didn't really work with her a lot. But Tom did, and they had some real big smoochy scenes. Yeah. Can we talk about that? Could there be any more sex? What was the three-page makeout scene that just kept going? Good Lord! We get it! They have chemistry! Jump in now or catch up on any of the past seasons of Talkville on YouTube or wherever you listen.